once again, everyone. Today, oh, it just says Haggai. You want to wonder where in Haggai. Well, first of all, you want to wonder maybe where it is. It's towards the end of the New Testament. So you can go to Matthew and then just go back a little bit and you'll find Haggai is very short, just a couple of chapters, and you can easily breeze right by it. So anyway, uh, let's pray as we start. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Lord, thank you for your grace to help me to say things well and for your grace to give all of us ears to hear what you may have for us today. Lord, whether the Old Testament or the New Testament, Lord, all of it is pointing to your, to your son, to your salvation, to your glory. Lord, through your people, through your church, those who you are so mercifully saving, saving and bringing safely into your kingdom. So we bless you this morning as we, as we begin. So, this morning we will be going through this small portion of the Old Testament. It's about rebuilding the temple after the Babylonian exile. This period of history is covered by the book of Ezra, and during this time there are two prophets sent by God who are intimately involved in the process. These are Haggai and Zechariah. These two begin their prophetic ministries about 20 years after the initial return of some of the Israelites from Babylon. And these two both prophesy to the people about this, rebuilding the unfinished temple. Ezra very concisely tells us how the two prophets were involved to motivate the rebuilding. Then the prophets, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, the son of Edo, prophesied unto the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. And the result was the priest, the governor, the people, everyone got moving. Ezra says they began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, and with them were the prophets of God helping them. So our focus today will be about the prophets of God were helping them. And then note the final outcome regarding the rebuilding of the temple. The house was finished. That's the simple summary of the second temple being finished after much opposition and troubles. Now, the two books of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah have overlaps in time and subject matter, but Zechariah is much longer and has many prophecies about later times. Haggai, on the other hand, is a short book focused on motivating the rebuilding of the temple itself, and so will consider just a portion of the short book of Haggai this morning and we'll see how God encourages his people when they see things aren't going well. So, if you're there, chapter 2 of Haggai, let's read the first five verses of chapter 2. 
In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people and say, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes yet? Now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. So, in the book of Haggai, things had not been going well regarding of the building of the temple of our God in Jerusalem. It lies unfinished, still in a ruinous condition, having been previously destroyed by outside forces, namely the Babylonians. Haggai's prophecy is spoken to the governor and also to the high priest and also to all the people who were there, actually what Haggai calls all the remnant of the people, including those who bothered to leave from the Babylonian exile to return to Jerusalem to live, work, and build amongst the ruins, to spend their time where God had called them by his providence, trying to serve God in spite of the difficult circumstances. Even though they are discouraged by severe resistance, the sight of the temple's ruinous condition, by lack of motivation, God's plans for this temple, his people, and the ultimate final true saving temple will be fulfilled no matter what. Just to jump ahead for a moment, that final saving temple, speaking about the temple of his body over 500 years after the time of our Haggai text, Jesus said to his opponents, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So the history of the temple is very important. Haggai is a short book, only 38 verses. His prophecies are nearly all about one topic, rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem now that many Jews had returned from the exile. Only at the end, in the last four verses, does Haggai prophesy about the future and allude to God's future plans regarding his son, the Messiah. Haggai is very specific about exact dates, and when we add them up, we see he prophesied over a total of just over three months. And the situation in these months goes from strong rebuke by God to promise of blessings because they got motivated to build and reverse the ruins. Haggai's little book began by describing what God did to get the rebuilding going back in chapter 1. There, the Lord's word through Haggai rebuked them for basically ignoring the temple work. And then 
There seems a rather rapid change of heart after a very long time of idleness. From the first day of Haggai's prophecy, saying that they must put God's temple first in their lives, just 24 days pass. There in chapter 1, the people obeyed the prophecy. The people feared the Lord because the Lord declared, I am with you, and very importantly, finishes his encouragement, declaring the Lord stirred up the spirits of all, all the leaders and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And so they begin to build in chapter 1. Then there's more in our text today in chapter 2, the next month after chapter 1, there Haggai begins by speaking to all once again. He speaks to the governor of Judah and to the high priest and to all the remnant of the people, so everyone is to be listening. Then note in verse 3, before Haggai gives his greatly encouraging words to the people that they must carry on rebuilding the temple, he first says, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? The temple foundation had already been laid many years ago, so one could see about how big it was going to be, not much compared to the original temple. So God, through Haggai, says about the temple, which they must struggle mightily to build, how do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? That does not seem like a very encouraging thing to say to a people with a monumental task before them, required by God, see chapter 1, do this mighty work for my glory. But by the way, you can see as you start, is it not as nothing in your eyes? He is speaking to who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory, but all the others are hearing the discouraging words. There are some among them who had seen the former temple, and they were dismayed. Well, the full remnant get to share in the history and pessimism. Now let's stop for a moment and see if history is repeating itself here. Recall the original group of people who left the exile for Jerusalem about 20 years before the time of Haggai's prophecies. They did build the altar, have sacrifices, and rejoice very greatly in the Lord. But there was such opposition from those living in the area, the process stopped for about 15 years until the time of Haggai. Ezra will describe the basics regarding these people from 20 years earlier. Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Not everyone departed the exile. Those whose spirit God had stirred to go did so. But look at what they took with them from the people around them. 
Ezra tells us they were nicely aided and equipped to go with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares, besides all that was freely offered, plus the treasures that were taken decades earlier when Jerusalem was destroyed and the exile began. The return to Jerusalem to build the temple began in great fanfare and blessing their spirits stirred by God himself to go rebuild. They finished the altar. They laid the foundation. But then, note in Ezra, we read of the discouragement. Discouragement like we just read in verse 3 of Haggai. What's the deal? We're working on these ruins, but the old was so much better. This is nothing compared to what we had, what we were used to, what we loved and thought permanent. Ezra tells us about those first returners, those many years earlier. But many of the priests and the Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, first temple, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish between the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. So even though these people described by Ezra as everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go to rebuild the house of the Lord, they ultimately became discouraged. The whole process fizzled out. The work stopped. The temple still lay in ruins. Of course, it was through strong opposition. It ended up being 15 years of discouragement. So God intervened again by sending Haggai those many years later. And Haggai began his book in chapter 1 by rebuking the Israelites for their lack of progress. It tells us they feared the Lord. The Lord declared, I am with you. And the Lord stirred up the spirits of everyone to begin to build up from the ruins. And then, just a few weeks later, in our chapter 2 text, as we read, Haggai tells us God speaking to them again. Same basic message, encouraging them again. But note, this time, as he begins his encouragement, he states what seems very discouraging. Remember the temple's former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? God is stating the obvious. No need to sugarcoat things. Look at the foundation. Remember its former glory. Look at it now. What do your eyes see? So there is God's temple, God's house. It's in bad shape. Opposition has taken its toll. People are discouraged looking at the task before them. It was more glorious, but not now. And looking at it, even if they do carry on, will it be as nothing in your eyes, what they see? Is God encouraging or discouraging? When I read, most recently through Haggai, something resonated in a way it hadn't in the past. We read the Old Testament. 
the things that happened, how the people lived, how they responded to things God brought about, stories of wars and conquerings, judgments and blessings, how the Israelites were exiled after Jerusalem was sacked and the temple destroyed, their religious life in peril under assault. In past readings, it seemed more distant and unrelatable, especially to modern American thinking. That was terrible for them way back then. But this time, it resonated in a different way. That yes, history does repeat itself. That Ecclesiastes is right. There is nothing new under the sun. It just comes in different forms at different times in history. So, I am pointing to how the modern American church is a temple, a house of God, that though not in ruins, it appears to be missing many of its stones and has creaking walls. James teaches us that our life is but a vapor, including mine. And even in the shortness of it, I am old enough to have lived through and watched much of the worst of the temple being torn down along with the culture. Let me illustrate. When I was born, they were just finishing cleaning up from Dwight Eisenhower's second term presidential inauguration ceremonies just about 65 years ago. Now, I am not conflating our nation with the church, not saying we were a Christian nation, as some would say, but clearly the strength of the church had a profound impact on the culture then and does now. This should be apparent to us that the culture and the church appear both in serious trouble, in peril, under assault, and have been for a long time. What basic evidence do I have? Up to 1950, three quarters of the states had daily Bible reading in the public schools. In 1954, the words under God were added to the Pledge of Allegiance. But then, in 1962, the Supreme Court decided a certain prayer said in New York public schools was no longer allowed. This began a flood of similar actions and decisions. The next year, the curriculum in Pennsylvania public schools requiring daily reciting of the Lord's Prayer and reading 10 Bible verses was no longer permitted. Will you note that during this time, a very different ACLU was concerned and warned this type of action might one day lead to the end of singing Christmas carols in the public schools? Really? And so God's expungement from the culture has exploded. The results should be apparent to us all. Meanwhile, how's the church? Up to the late 1990s, going back decades, Gallup tells us about 70% or more of adults were church 
members. Now they tell us church membership is below 50%. But what's underneath that membership? One excellent preacher I know of understood perfectly the trouble in the church, titling one sermon, Why the Gospel Isn't Preached in the American Church. His answer? So many modern church-going Americans don't like being told they're lost hell-doomed sinners. And that was in the 1960s. Is the church having trouble? Yes, it is. The critical race theory, the woke, the dramatic increase in what we might call Galatianism, polluting the gospel, going down avenues of woke works that deflect the people's attention from the truths of the gospel? Or is it just adjusting it to make it more palatable to those who are seekers and thus be sensitive to those seekers? Is it a sinister plot of a human cabal or the way of mankind to want to turn away from the Lord, pollute the gospel, turn away from the message of the cross of Christ, since it is so utterly offensive to mankind, always looking for a diversion from its message of our utter depravity, sinful nature, and need to come to God with our lives and our sin, to faith in Jesus Christ, with nothing in our hands, nothing to offer, but belief, repentance, and obedience. So by all appearances, there's trouble, but God has a solution. After verse 3, where God seems to be discouraging them, discourage them by being truthful about what was in the mind of many, about to put their hand to the work, saying about the temple he is commanding them to build. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Haggai turns a corner. He's all about being strong. Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst, fear not. So the Lord, through Haggai, has plainly pointed out the obvious. The temple is in bad shape. And even if they work hard, it will be like nothing in your eyes. That is what they see. It's not like the glorious great temple of the past. But of course, the glory of the temple is God himself, that is where he meets his people, not the building's glory. God has a long history regarding where he meets his people. The Jews come out of Egypt, and right there in the desert, the tent of meeting is ordered up by God. And God has them build the tabernacle, surrounded by all the tribes, the place where he meets with them. As he says in Exodus, there I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. But note, it is through the priests that they will truly meet in the holy place, not the people. Later, God had them build Solomon's temple, and 
once again, God says it is the place where he will meet with them as he speaks to Solomon. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. But note again, it is through the priests that they will truly meet in the holy place, not the people. And then we come to our temple here in Haggai. Later, Harold rebuilds the temple to a greater glory at the time of Jesus here on earth. But it lasts only until it is destroyed in AD 70 by the Romans. So God is very insistent and focused on the temple where he meets his people. And of course, we fortunate to be modern Christians who have the entire Bible God has delivered to us know why God is focused on a temple where he meets his people because of his son, Jesus Christ. But at this point in history, God is going to speak through Haggai to encourage them by reminding them of his presence, his power, and his long history of faithfulness to his people by his providence, no matter what may stand against them. <clears throat> so in these verses four and five, he repeats three times, be strong. Yes, be strong because stones, rocks, and bricks are heavy. Temple building is hard. Why be strong? He tells them one word, <clears throat> work. That seems pretty simple, work. Get to work on the temple, no more distractions like in chapter one. And the be strong and work part comes about how? Firstly, he, can, he continues, work for I am with you. Can they believe him when he says that? Well, he encourages them reminding of past times of God's faithfulness and providence. One reason they can be strong, he recounts his blessings for obedience through time to encourage them. God's continuous work in history, ultimately for the good of his people. At that time, they are just one group of God's people persevering in the moment. Meanwhile, God is always doing something far greater in history than they can imagine as he glorifies himself in it all. So first he encourages them by going back about 900 years earlier, reminding them about Egypt as he often does. Remember when you came out of Egypt, you plundered them, you got manna and water and God's words of promise to you from Moses. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. But note this, because of the exact dates given in Haggai, we can say these verses from today were delivered by Haggai to all the people on the last regular day of the Feast of Tabernacles, a time of great celebration of God's provisions in the yearly harvest, but also where they would dwell in booths. It's interesting Haggai spoke on that day, reminding them not only of God's ongoing provisions for them, but surely also words about the reason for the booths that your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths 
when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. And secondly, God through Haggai says how they can be strong and work. Yes, with a strong back to do heavy lifting, but my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. There is the key to it all. In addition to the strong back, he is making a promise to all his remnant people about the Holy Spirit working in all his remnant people. Statements like that are not very common in the Old Testament. Most often in the Old Testament, when it speaks about the Holy Spirit being involved, it is him working in the life of one person, usually a prophet or a leader. David, Moses, Gideon, Samson, Elijah. Here in our verses, he speaks to all of them, the remnant, and all you people of the land. These verses 4 and 5 are, as we noted, God leading them to remember their history to encourage them. God's continuous work in history for his people. And so after reminding them of his providence all the way back since Egypt, he says, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. The Holy Spirit remains in their midst. God's still and forever at work in his people. The Holy Spirit remaining in your midst as he helps his people to fear not and do temple work. He helped them then, and of course we know Jesus says he is still helping now. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. And for believers, he dwells with you and will be in you. And so, here in Haggai, they build the second temple through toil and hardships. As we can see, God is very focused on his temple over centuries, the place where God meets with his people. Sacrifices were given for a time in a building with those sacrifices. In our verses of today about the second temple, we noted God had said, is it not as nothing in your eyes? Well, much later, John tells us Herod had recently built up this temple into something much more glorious. But of course, it all leads up to the ultimate temple. Jesus went up to Herod's temple and drove the money changers out. And the Jews questioned him, asking, what are you doing here at this temple, which has taken 46 years to build? And Jesus replied, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And John tells us, but he was speaking about the temple of his body, an ongoing link between the Old Testament temple and Jesus himself. God meets us in Jesus Christ. He is the once for all sacrifice for our sins, and ultimately in eternity, John tells us in Revelation, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. But until then, there is ongoing persevering work to be done in the temple, no matter its condition in the moment. Work done since God's Spirit remains in our midst 
fear not. Paul tells us this. Do you not know that you? That's all we believers. Are God's temple and together the church? And that God's spirit dwells in you and amongst us believers. Paul says, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And then, as we come toward the end of our passage for today, with these final four verses, we are reminded that it's God's world, history, plan, glory. These last four verses. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God can bring any resource needed for what he plans to accomplish as he says, fill this house with glory. The current situation with the temple may be, is it not as nothing in your eyes? Maybe a depressing spectacle at present, but he will fill this house with glory and the result of their perseverance, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts but certainly not the way it looks, may seem to make no sense in the physical world, makes lots of sense in the spiritual world. Through their perseverance and just carrying on to do what God called them to do, since he promises to be with them, somehow these people are building something greater than what their eyes see in their time of history. Is it not as nothing in your eyes? The mustard seed has only sprouted just so far and keeps needing water, but it's gonna keep growing. We can water, but God gives the growth. So God says, do some trusting by your spirit rather than your eyes, because somehow God will make certain the latter glory will be greater than the former. The fruit of their labors and ours and all who have served the Lord will prove more glorious than they could ask or imagine. And notice the last few words of the last verse of this month of Haggai's prophesying. After promising the ever greater temple glory, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts, we know there is a latter greater glory for the temple, for the ultimate temple, Jesus Christ, gloried in by his believing church. Through his sinlessly perfect life, his sacrifice for our sins upon the cross, his rising from the dead to glory, bestowing saving faith upon his elect, forgiving their sins, and clothing those he calls into his kingdom and his perfect righteousness 
There is peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke, after the apostles asked Jesus to increase our faith, he says, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you could say to a tree to be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey. Then he continues, speaking of a servant who comes in after a day's hard work and is told by his master to keep serving, prepare the suffer, and then serve his master. Only later does the servant eat. Then this finish. So you and me also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. So, as unworthy servants, just working in our fields, knowing God's promise of him bringing about the latter greater glory of this house, patience and humility are our lot. Maybe just praying for increased faith to keep working in the field God has assigned to each of us, and it feels like asking a tree to go plant itself in the sea. In all of it, the Lord provides for us to eat and drink as we serve unworthily. Serve unworthily, patient, until the wedding supper of the Lamb. Discouragement comes naturally to most of us sinners. Faith to keep trusting the one true God in times of persecution and cultural collapse is supernatural. During one of God's days, a thousand years go by, and each year the temple is ultimately being built beyond what anyone may see even if it looks like it had a better former glory. And one may wonder, how do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And God's answer, yet now be strong, declares the Lord. Be strong, all you people of the land. Work, for I am with you. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, living by faith, not by sight. Father, thank you for always reminding us by your word that you are the creator and we are the created, that it is your world, your earth, your plan, your glory your temple, your church. And Lord, you are always doing all than we could ask or imagine in spite of what our eyes may see. So we thank you, Lord, the many, many times you have encouraged your people by reminding them, reminding us of your constant, constant goodness to your people, Lord. 
So help us to keep trusting, Lord, no matter what our eyes may see, even if there was a former greater glory around us, Lord, in years and decades past, Lord, we know that there is just a repetition in history of the, the ways of mankind, Lord. So we just ask for your strength, Lord, that we would persevere as your servants, thinking of your glory and the great unimaginable promises you have made to us who are yours after our time here. Lord, as we put our hand to the plow and work and pray and, and trust in you. So, Lord, that is our plea this morning that you would help us to trust as we enter the new year, Lord, whatever may come upon the church or the culture, Lord, we need your supernatural help to trust, to persevere keep on keeping on for the glory of your name and in the name of your great glorious son Jesus Christ we thank you amen